Would you maybe start with a prayer? Heavenly Father, we bow before thee tonight, thankful that we can take this time, gather together, we can pause from the work schedules and the busyness, Lord, that comes in the week, and we can gather together and around thy word. We pray, Father, that thy word would instruct us, that it would teach us tonight. We live in a world, Father, that is based upon opinions and feelings and man's ideas. We're thankful tonight, Father, that we have thy word that is unchanging, it's unmovable, it's unshakable, it will be until the end, it's eternal. We're thankful that we can look to this, Father, for our guidance and inspiration and direction that we might know the truth. And we pray that thy truth would prevail here in this evening. Father, that thou would be here in our midst and speak plainly to us and clearly to us and give us clear instruction, we pray. May thy anointing be upon us from thy Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So tonight I'd like to speak just a little bit about the Holy Spirit. And I was asked, not too long ago, a few weeks ago, how do I know if I have the Holy Spirit? That was a question that was asked of me. And I've been asked that question many times by many different people, wondering how, how do we know if the Spirit of God, if we, if we have the Spirit of God? And I, I think it's a question maybe all of us have from time to time wondered. And when we look there at that first church there in Acts, we see that they were um, men who who had a lot of power. They had power to raise the dead. They had power to heal. They had power to overcome sin. They had power to pray. They had power to fast. They had power to effectively evangelize. They had power to obey the teachings of Christ. They had power to live like Christ. They had power to respond like Christ. They had power to die like Christ. They had power to cast out devils. They had power to preach. They had power to speak in other tongues. They had power to do miracles. And they had power to live separate, distinct lives from the world. And we know that all of this power that, that we see there, we know the source of all that power was from the Holy Spirit. That was where that power came from. And... We read there in 1 Corinthians 3.16, kind of one of the texts that I'd like to consider tonight. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? Now, of course, that verse only applies to those that actually have the Spirit of God dwelling in them. Otherwise, that verse doesn't necessarily apply. But that's what we're trying to figure out tonight. How do we know if we have the Holy Spirit in us? And I think that a lot of people, when addressing this question, they rely on their feelings. They rely on what their, what their heart is telling them. 
and they, they listen to their heart and they listen to their feelings. They listen to their emotions on how they're feeling. And so because they feel that they have him, they find some measure of confidence in that. But tonight, I would like to look to the Word just for some solid direction, because I believe it's a question that we can answer objectively, and we don't have to go by what our heart is telling us. We don't have to go by what we're feeling. We can actually know based upon the direction that the Word gives us. So that's what I'm really interested in tonight. Maybe as a side note, one of you brothers just mentioned to me, um, and I appreciated the, the thought, but just as a side note, when we refer to the Holy Spirit, let's be really careful not to refer to the Holy Spirit as it. We hear that often, not necessarily among us, brother, and I haven't necessarily heard that, but it's common in visiting with others. We oftentimes hear the Holy Spirit referred to as it, and the Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is, it makes up the third part of the Trinity of God. And we would not refer to one another as it when we're discussing one another in a conversation. I wouldn't say, in reference to Andrew, I wouldn't say it has come. I would say he has come. I think in how we refer to the Holy Spirit, I think it, I think it maybe um, reveals a lack of understanding or a lack of, maybe in a, in a, unintentionally, maybe even a lack of reverence towards him. So that's just a little side note just maybe something to consider that we would be careful with. So maybe to begin with, I'd like to, I'm going to work through here a number of different uh, points, but the first question I'd like to address, I'd like to look at how, how do we receive the Holy Ghost? I think that that's a question that needs to be answered and that, that, we, need, that we need to know and that the scripture is very clear on. So I'd like to read a couple of different scriptures. I'd, I'd like to start here from Acts chapter 2, and I just want to read verses 37 and 38. This isn't in any necessarily particular order. I maybe should start in a different place, but I'm, I'll start here with Acts chapter 2, verse 37, 38. It says, after Peter had finished preaching there, the, that Pentecost sermon, um, the Jews, it says here, were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So, Remember here, we're trying to answer the question, how do we receive the Holy Ghost? In Acts chapter 5, verse 32, it says, And we are his witnesses of these things, and so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. In John 14, Verses 15 through 17, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. In Luke 
chapter 11, verse 13. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? In John 7, verse 38 and 39, He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. So, objectively, from these verses, we don't have to go based on feelings. We don't have to guess on how we can receive the Holy Spirit. The Scripture makes it very plain to us, very clear to us, that by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, we can receive the Holy Spirit. By repenting of our sins... And by being baptized, we can receive the Holy Spirit. Through love of God and then obedience, keeping His commandments, we receive the Holy Spirit. And then also by asking for Him, we receive the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. I don't think you can take necessarily any one of those out. I don't think it's, it's a either or. I don't think you can say, well, I've repented, and so therefore I receive the Holy Spirit. I think we have to take the collective whole and when we have done these things, then we receive the Holy Spirit. Um, until then, I believe the Spirit of God is certainly working in us, around us, um, helping us. But if we are to really receive Him, these things, I believe, uh, are certainly all need to be in place in order to receive the Holy Spirit. Again, that's believing, repenting, and being baptized loving God, and then consequently keeping His commandments, and also asking. So maybe in self-reflection, we can consider where each of us are at in that. If we're going to answer the question, do we, do I have the Holy Spirit? In self-reflection, then we could consider each one of those, and then I think we can begin to find pretty clear direction through faith. I think if, if those things are fulfilled and we are doing those things, I think there's a confidence that we can have. Um, so that, that is how do, we, how do we receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, the second question that I'd like to address tonight is how then is the Holy Ghost manifest in a believer's life? And what, what, what should we be seeing? If he's dwelling there, if we're considering, um, know ye not that ye are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? Uh, so as we examine ourselves, how does he manifest himself in the life of a believer? How do we know if we have the Holy Ghost filling us? So the first point I'd like to look at is the Holy Ghost is manifest through gifts. We've talked about this before. But he's manifest through gifts, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 11, it says, But the manifestation, so the, the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, 
to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But all these worketh that one and the selfsame spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. Paul states in Romans 12, verses 6 through 8, that having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth, showeth mercy with cheerfulness. So again, we don't have to be based on our feelings here. We don't, need to, we don't need to answer these questions based on what our heart is telling us. We can, again, simply self-examine our lives um, in the quietness of our closet, so to speak. We can spend time reflecting, maybe even asking our brethren, what gifts, if any, do they see in us? And I think that sometimes that's hard for individuals to see. Other times... Maybe they think they have gifts that maybe they don't. It's not necessarily totally self-reflection that maybe is necessary, but yet it, that is important. Do you have any of these gifts that the Spirit of God, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given? So if we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us, then we ought to be able to identify, I would say at least one of these gifts, hopefully maybe even more. I don't know that I should use the word hopefully. I guess it's just however he would see fit. But we ought to be able to look at this. Now, I think some of the challenges come. What about questions that I've heard before? I don't know that I'll be able to address completely here tonight. But sometimes the question comes, well, what about if, if I haven't been baptized yet? Then, And yet I feel that maybe I would have maybe some of these gifts. And... I can believe that. I think that God has created us. I think God knows what gifts he wants to give to us. I think that we feel that even within us. But the fullness of that gift is not going to be realized until we have the indwelling of God's Spirit. So I can remember uh, before I was, before I was uh, converted, um, as I look back on that now, I would say some of those uh, traits that were in my life, even before my conversion, they were not being used for God. They were being used in ways that were, you know, that, that were not necessarily to his glory. But as I look back now, he took those things that were created in me that were perverted through sin, and I believe that he used that and has developed now into what some of these spiritual gifts are. But I think we run the risk on, on a number of these things, um, Sometimes we view it, you know, there's maybe a false sense of humility sometimes that it's difficult for us to recognize or admit or, or confess that I do believe God has given me this gift. We feel like that might be pride. It could be pride. Uh, but I do think that it's important that we recognize, do we have any of these gifts? If we're going to answer that question, do I have the Holy Spirit filling me? then if you do, you will notice that you, you do have some gifts. And you need to acknowledge that. You need to, not based on anything that you've done, but simply because he is dwelling in you. Does that make sense? Is that, that clear enough? Again, I'm looking to give us some objective uh, biblical thought here that we, can, that we can actually build from and know 
not just guess. So if you don't recognize any gifts in you, then we might have to consider the possibility that maybe not. You know, the, we, have to, we have to address that then as well. Another way that the Holy Ghost manifests himself in a believer's life is through fruit. Galatians 5, 22 through 23, he speaks of the fruit of the Spirit being love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. And Jesus said that you'll know them by their fruits, and that every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. And so, as we, as we look at that, here is another objective way in which we can identify, is the Spirit of God actually living in me? Do I manifest His fruit, the fruit of the Spirit? So, when we consider love, we're not speaking about some mushy feeling that's warm and cuddly, although at times maybe love could manifest itself in that way. But I believe it's a much deeper, you know, that, that, that biblical love that we're speaking of here. If we're going to really understand this, I would suggest that we spend some time looking up and using the Scripture. I don't know that Webster's Dictionary is going to quite cut it completely. I think it's a help. We can look at Webster's Dictionary. We can look in the Strong Concordance, and we can look up each one of these words. But again, if we want to objectively know, do we have the Holy Spirit in us, we're not looking at the world's definition of love. We're not looking at the world's definition of joy or the world's definition of peace. But we want to know the scriptural definition of this. What God, when God says love, when God says joy, when God says gentleness and meekness and temperance, we need to know God's definition of those words. And then we just need to, again, honestly examine ourselves and see, are those things in me? Do I have love, the fruit of the Spirit, joy, peace? Do I have those things? And sometimes it's helpful if we would just go to the Word and we would look up examples of men who were exhibiting love. That's a good way of knowing and being able to understand how, what, what God's definition of love is or what God's definition of joy is or peace. Look there in the scriptures. We're not going to necessarily get into that tonight. But again, I just want to lay a foundation, a groundwork for us to know so that we don't have to base it on our feelings. We can actually now go home in the quietness of our closet and, and, and before God honestly examine ourselves and say, do, do we have this? Do, do we have? Um, you know, a while ago we talked about temperance. And we gave some definition to that, I believe, biblical definition to it. And, but we, we, we could go along there and do that with each one of those things. And I think probably what we'll find is, is that certainly if we have the Spirit of God, we will find those things in our lives. But we'll probably also find that there's room for each of those fruits to continue. I say fruits. It, it says fruit. There is room for that fruit to continue to grow and be perfected and to, to reach that fruition, that, that ripeness. It's probably, if all of us look at it, we would probably all have to humbly just admit we can do better probably in each one of those. We, there's room for our love to grow. There's room for our gentleness to become more complete. There's room for more long-suffering. There's room for a growth of faith, an increase of faith. We could be more meek. We could be more temperate. 
And so I, I think that it's good for us to really look at that and, again, to honestly examine. I think it encourages us, doesn't it, as we go through there and if we can begin to identify that we have done these things, we have repented of our sins, we have been baptized, we have, um, as we went through there, you know, we, we've, um, we do love God, we are keeping His commandments, we are praying and asking. I trust, are we all asking for the Holy Spirit? I, I trust that we are. I trust that every day we're asking for Him, that we would ask that, that God would give us His Holy Spirit to help us with all of the decisions, with all of the experiences that each day brings to us, but as we work through that, and, we, and, and so we see that we're doing that, we look through and we see that we do identify that God has given us certain gifts, and then we are also able to identify that there is fruit. We do see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. It gives us a tremendous encouragement, doesn't it? And that's, I think, what so many are asking. When they come and they ask, do I have the Holy Spirit? Satan comes a lot of times, and he wants to place doubt. I think that's typically why it's asked me. Typically, they're doubting. Typically, they're worried. Typically, they wonder. They don't, they don't, they don't feel. They, and, and, and the devil's right there accusing, and they wonder. But when we can just work through these scriptures, I think it, be, it can be a tremendous encouragement for, for all of us, hopefully. Uh, maybe it encourages us to, um, to greater... Uh, repentance. Maybe it encourages us to greater effort. Maybe it encourages us by saying, I, I see this. I see God as... And I think that's really critical. If we're going to be effective Christians, it doesn't work so good if we're doubting whether or not we have the Holy Spirit. That doesn't work very good in, in our conversing with others. It doesn't work very good in our relationships. If we're constantly wondering if God is with me, uh, that's, that's a unbelief. But when we believe, when we know, when we have that confidence, that assurance, no, God is with me. God is dwelling in me. There is a confidence. They're not in ourself. It's not a, it's not a, a prideful boasting. It's just a, a thankfulness and a joy that then I think others see and they feel that. They experience that. And they say, there's something different here. He has something that I don't have. We talked a little while ago. We had a message a few weeks ago about unity. And I think sometimes men work towards unity overlooking the fact, overlooking the, the need that the first thing we need to be united in is that we all have the same Spirit, the Holy Spirit. We're not looking for the Spirit of unity, and we all understand, don't we, that there is a Spirit of unity in the world today. We're not looking for that. We're looking for the unity of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And apart from each of us having Him, it's going to be very difficult in our understanding of doctrine, our understanding of truth, it's going to be very difficult in our, our reactions, our, our, the way we respond. If we don't have the Holy Spirit, we're going to notice that the way that we do things and respond to things is going to be different. It, it, it's sometimes taken for granted. We assume that we, we begin with that. It's, it's almost a presupposition that we understand that in order to achieve true biblical unity, we must begin by having the Holy Spirit. And again, apart from faith, apart from repentance, apart from we can't have him. And so sometimes we, we can identify in certain brotherhoods and congregations uh, a disunity, a, a, a strife and contention. The first question we ought to really wonder is not necessarily, what, what do you believe? What do you believe? Probably the first question we ought to the examination would be, do we have the Spirit of God? God is not disjointed, as we shared in that message several weeks ago. Okay. So... 
we've looked now at how do we receive the Holy Ghost. We look here at how the Holy Ghost is manifest. I'm not uh, suggesting that this is all-inclusive. There's probably other things that you could come up with as well. But use the Bible for it. Use objective truth there to not by feelings. But we, we've looked at how the Holy Ghost is manifest in a believer's life. Now I'd like to look at the work of the Holy Ghost in our lives. The work of the Holy Ghost in believers' lives who have gone before us. Christ said in John 16, verse 8, he says, And when he has come, speaking of the Holy Spirit, and when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And so one of the ways that we can identify the Holy Spirit working in the, a brother, working in a brotherhood, working in our own lives, is by examining our interaction even with other people. As we rub shoulders with the world, are we rubbing shoulders and um, keeping peace, as we've said, or are we making peace? And making peace is very different than keeping peace. Keeping peace is just not saying anything that's going to ruffle anybody's feathers. It's not addressing sin. It's not challenging unrighteousness. It's just simply going along and getting along. And if, if that's where we're at, we should be concerned. Because if we have the Spirit of God living in us, then the way we react in this world that we are in but not of is that one of the marks of the Spirit of God in an individual is, is that he does reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And so, for instance, what that looks like in, in the scriptures of what we see, we see very quickly when the Spirit of God came down upon them there at Pentecost, what we see there almost immediately is a spontaneous, impromptu preaching from Peter addressing 3,000 men. And what we have to keep in mind here is, is that Prior to this, Peter being very confident in, him, in his own self, telling the Lord, I'll never deny you, I'll never leave you. At the, at the questioning of a, of a little girl, denies his Lord exactly according to what Jesus told him he would. And so we see a man who's afraid of a little girl suddenly now in front of 3,000 men and telling them, ye who have by... Wicked hands have crucified and slain the Lord of glory. Something tremendous has happened here. Do you understand that? that? That here was a man that was afraid of men, even afraid of a little girl. He was afraid of conflict. He was afraid of being uh, put into the same camp with this man who was going to be crucified. And now suddenly in front of 3,000 men, what was the difference? He's boldly reproving them, telling them wicked hands. Well, the only difference that I can see is, is the clear account that the Spirit of God came upon them in the form of, of the tongues of fire, and that was the difference. And Christ saying that when he's come, he will reprove the world of sin, and that's what we see actually happening here now with these men who otherwise were fearful. So consider yourself as you interact in the world around you. Do men see you as peacekeepers, or are you actually being a peacemaker? Peacemaker addressing the sin, addressing the unrighteousness, addressing those things. I don't say in, a, in an obnoxious way or in a necessarily uh, provoking way, but led by God in a fruitful way, we trust and hope. 
Soon after that experience, uh, Peter was again uh, reproving the Jews at the temple. And he says this, he says, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? You remember the scene there. There was this man that had, um, he was lame, and he asked him for money. And they said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ, Nazareth, rise up and walk. And so he's saying this, ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom you delivered up, and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But she denied the Holy One and the just. Now just, again, think of this, this reproving that's happening here. And just again consider that not too long ago, he was denying his Lord in front of a little girl. This is in a much more intense uh, situation here. And the words that he's using, I would say, are not warm and fuzzy, like just pat you on the back. He, he's just simply calling him out. You, you denied him. You denied the Holy One and the just. And the desire to murder to be granted unto you, and killed the prince of life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong, whom you see now, see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given him his, this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I want that through ignorance you did it, as did all, also your rulers. That's evidence of God's Spirit working there. So again, I'm, I'm calling us to reflect upon our own individual lives. And the question that we might be asking ourselves, or maybe should be asking ourselves at this point, in our examination of whether or not the Spirit of God dwells in us, is what is our interaction at work with others? What is our interaction in the relationships that are around us? Are we afraid of men, or do we fear God? Are we able to speak truth to them? Do we find opportunities? Do we pray for opportunities? And are we, are we bringing truth to them? I, there's a number of other examples. This isn't necessarily popular in our day and time, but I believe that, again, if we want to know, if we want to answer the question, is God's Holy Spirit filling me, then we need to compare it with the Word. So almost immediately after this, Peter and John <coughs> excuse me, were taken before the religious leaders and questioned, to which Peter, it says here, filled with the Holy Ghost. So, I think that's significant. I think we need to pay attention to that. We know that they were filled with the Holy Ghost, and this is what it looked like there at Pentecost. Now we read here again, he's filled with the Holy Ghost, and this is what we're seeing. Now, if we're filled with the Holy Ghost, can we draw any other conclusion that we ought to be seeing similar, similar situations? We ought to be finding ourselves in similar responses and relationships around us and, and dealing with this. Does that make sense? Does that, that help us to see where we might, might be? But it says here, Filled with the Holy Ghost said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he's made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, you think about that. Ugh. That, that was incredibly abrasive. That was incredibly contentious. That was incredibly confrontational. You crucified him. It's not your brothers didn't do it, your fathers didn't do it, you 
crucified him. Whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none of other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all that them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them, that they speak henceforth to no man in, his, in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people, for all men glorified God for that which was done. A pretty amazing account. And again, to call our attention back, we are considering what is the work of the Holy Ghost. Do we, do we see this work of the Holy Ghost in our lives? It's just an honest question. Do we see that? Or do we just go along and get along? Laugh at the jokes. That's convicting, isn't it? Laugh at the little off-color things, maybe the, and instead of reproving it, and it's not always necessarily through words. I'm not saying that it is, but it's just a good thing, way to, for us to examine and to see. There, I have several more examples here. In Acts 4.31, it says they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. This is after they went back and prayed. It says the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And then what was the result of that? They spake the word of God with boldness. It's, it's just, it's an effect of it. It's a fruit of it. Being filled with the Holy Ghost, those men that are filled with the Holy Ghost, they will speak the word of God with boldness. And that's grating against people. People don't like that. People will find fault with that. People will accuse and slander men who have the Holy Ghost because their words have power. It's not, it's, it's, it's like uh, when they walked there with Jesus on the road of Emmaus, and they said, did not our hearts burn within us? God's word has power, and men who are anointed by God will speak the word of God with power, and it will bring conviction. Forces change, it forces decisions to be made. It brings them to crossroads where they have to decide between right and wrong, good and evil, light and dark. So as we look upon our own lives, where are we at with this? Stephen was a man that was full of faith and power, and it says there that he did great wonders and miracles among the people, I believe. And But then they took him up, and here again is another example where we see, again, the Holy Ghost through Stephen reproving the world, again, of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, just as God, as Jesus said, would happen. Acts 7, 55, it tells us, but he being full of, of the Holy Ghost. But he being full of the Holy Ghost. Are you full of the Holy Ghost? Am I full of the Holy Ghost? Are we full of the Holy Ghost? 
Well, this is what he said, being full of the Holy Ghost. He says, ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they've slain them which have showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the dispensation of angels and have not kept it. Say, my Stephen, doesn't sound very loving. Today, Jesus is kind of pictured off as, as, as someone that would almost be, you couldn't hardly ever say anything hard. And yet, that's not how the Holy Ghost, the Comforter, spoke. Testifies he was full, being full of the Holy Ghost. He said some extremely uncomfortable things here to these men. Very extremely uncomfortable things. And I think Stephen full well knew the audience that he was talking to there and knew that he was in the hands of angry men that could very easily take his life. But being compelled by God's Spirit, he wasn't afraid of them. He feared God. That's challenging, isn't it? I mean, when we really consider that, isn't that challenging when we consider there's another account when Peter meets Simon the sorcerer and he thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money when he saw them laying on hands and he saw these men receiving the Holy Ghost through the laying on of hands and he said, here's some money so that I might receive that gift. And Peter, what did he do? He rebuked him. He obviously had the Holy Spirit in him and that he was laying hands and they were receiving the Holy Spirit through the laying on of his hands. So again, we see another example. Elamus, the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, what does it say here again? Filled with the Holy Ghost set his eyes on him and said, he didn't say, oh, you sweet little child, you. Let me inform you. He says, oh, full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. That's in Acts 13, verses 8 through 11. But remember now, we're wondering, does the Holy Spirit of God fill me? And so we have to ask ourselves the question, do you fear man? Do I fear man? And if God's Spirit is in us, we have clear examples of what that ought to be looking like. God's Spirit, God's Holy Spirit works as a reprover, but He also works as a comforter. He works as a comforter. And so if we would consider... When things are going rough, when things are going tough, maybe when we've been slandered or falsely accused, or maybe when we've even tasted a bit of persecution, though it's only a bit. If the Spirit of God is in us, 
do we grumble and complain? Do we murmur and have pity? Or is, if he is in us, do we find comfort in those times? This is, again, another objective way of identifying the Spirit of God active in us. That when we are slandered, that when we are persecuted, when we are evil spoken of, when we are misunderstood, when, we are, when men do bad things to us, in the midst of trials and afflictions, we find comfort. Not make-believe comfort, not imaginary comfort, not comfort that we've just tried to muster up and try to have positive thinking, but actual genuine comfort because the comforter is there within us, able to minister in those times of trials and afflictions and sufferings, and in a real, tangible way, when we have the Spirit of God, we experience that. We experience something there that otherwise would be absolutely impossible to have. There's no other way for us to have it except by the Spirit of God. As we get a little older, we understand maybe we've had more of those experiences where we've been able to see that, God's comfort, God's comforter in us, comforting us. In those. When you're young, you haven't had as many of that, but probably you've at least had enough to be able to identify, how did I do in that trial and that affliction, that suffering? Was I comforted or did I complain, murmur, grumble, try to get out of it, seek, a, seek relief, resist it? God's comforter in us. Do we count it joy to suffer with Christ? And again, maybe not all of us here are seasoned in that. And at the most, some of us have only had very little of that. But we do still need to ask the question in examining, answering this question, do we count it joy to suffer with Christ as evidence of God's Spirit dwelling within us? And only you can answer that. Only in that moment of crisis can you answer that. But yes, God's comforter, he was with me, experienced that. That ought to really bring joy to our hearts if we can think back on those times and know there was no reason for joy there in that time. There was no reason for comfort in that time. The only explanation is, yes, God's spirit is with me. What a joy that is. Another question that we can ask, then, if God's comforter is dwelling within us, are we able? You see, we, we, we find ourselves in different situations where we're called to reprove, we're called to rebuke, we're called to admonish, we're called to exhort. But there are also times when it's not only appropriate, but necessary for us to minister comfort to those who are hurting. Broken relationships, disappointments, failures afflictions, loss. Those are all real-life experiences that we ourselves go through and then we walk with others that go through those times of hurt and suffering and pain and difficulty. And God's Spirit dwelling in us, of ourselves, we're kind of like Job's friends, miserable comforters. But when God's Spirit dwells within us, we ought to be able to minister in very real, significant ways that carries their burdens, where we carry one another's burdens, where we understand. And we can minister in a very effective way. Do we minister healing to those who are sick? 
These are questions. And I understand that those that have the gifts of those will, will find themselves in those positions more. Those that have the gift of prophecy will probably find themselves in those positions of reproving and exhorting and admonishing more often. Those that have the gift of ministering uh, may find themselves dealing with those who are hurting and those who are sick. We're called in different capacities, kind of like that, if I can go back to that orchestra illustration again, all playing the same music, possibly with a different instrument, with a different gift, and yet called to play the music perfectly, called to play it together, called to give a beautiful sound, called to come together in unity, but apart from the Spirit of God, it's not possible. So I think that by these scriptures, I'm not saying that that's all inclusive, but I think if we just, again, quickly recap, we can, we can look at how the scripture tells us how to receive the Holy Spirit. The scripture tells us how the Spirit is manifest. The scripture tells us how the Spirit of God works in our lives. And, the, and, and, and so that now we don't have to go by a feeling or guess. Now all that's necessary is in fulfillment of 1 Corinthians 3.16. We can go now, the quiet of our closets, maybe in fellowship with one another. We can now know ye not that ye are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. And this is what I think we can conclude with. Examine yourselves. Just examine yourselves now. Based on the word of God. Just on the word of God. Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves? How that Jesus Christ is in you? Except ye be reprobates. And as Paul said, I trust that you're not reprobates. Trust that we can go, we can consider. Honestly. Maybe if we don't, what do we do? Well, the scripture tells us right here. We have it all outlined right here in front of us what we ought to do if we don't have him. If we do have him. If we don't. It's all right here. Packaged up. And by his calling now, I hope that we can all have that desire you know, what can we do without him? What can we do without him? What effect can our words have? What effect can our lives have without him? We must have him. Our life depends upon having him. Any of you have any questions? Any thoughts maybe to add to it?